This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. And I think we've bought into a false binary where the only two options are you are a Bible thumping, you know, believer who does whatever your cultish leader instructs you to do and votes the way they tell you. And, you know, uh, you're that kind of Christian, right? Um, who's trying to convert everybody. Or you're a spiritual but not religious, enlightened, you know, agnostic. Like, those are the options, right? And the educated people go one way. And, you know, you and, and we've bought into that. But the truth is, most of us don't live in those stereotypical worlds. Churches are diverse places where you have all different levels of education and, and theology and belief, but we've bought into the false binary. What's up, everybody? It's the Deconstructionist Podcast. <laughs> I tried to, I tried to do something different. I know you do. You keep it fresh. I, I appreciate I that. I don't keep it very fresh. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Well, what's up, guys? This is Adam and John bringing you another tasty treat. Yeah, and uh, I, so one of the things we like to do is we try to find like I try not to pay too close attention to other similar podcasts, just in terms of like guests. Right. Because we like to try to be, uh, we try to dig as, as best we can. Not dig, that's a terrible way to put it. No, but like, you know, we're not just like skimming the top played podcasts of others, you know, right. out there and going, oh, yeah, everybody's interviewed this person. We should interview them too. I mean, we, we, we do that, I guess. Sure. But, <laughs> but a little. We yeah. also try to do this, get somebody that's, uh, you know, maybe a little bit lesser known, but, but worthy of being um, yeah. read and talked about. and We let the work speak discovered. for itself. Yes. So, so we, we go out and we get a bunch of books, and literally Adam and I were just talking about the fact that I have a um, probably like a foot-high stack of books yep. that is um, it's becoming dangerous yep. on, my, on my side, on my end table next to my bed. Yeah, it's not up to code. One night it will fall and collapse on my, on my head and kill me, probably. <laughs> but, but, but just books to go through. And, and so we look for books that, that sound interesting and that have uh, something interesting to say. And then if, uh, you know, if, we, if we like it, you know, we look into the guests. And if, if, you know, if they happen to have done the, the podcast circuit before, you know, fine. If, if not, even better, I think. Yep, absolutely. Even better. So the guest that we found here, uh, I got to give credit where credit is due. My dad gave me this book again, so <laughs> thanks, Dad. I know we were talking. He always gives me books, and uh, and so this was a really good one. It's called uh, "Tired of Apologizing for a Church I Don't Belong to" by Lillian Daniel. What a great title! And it's the subtitles is great too. It's spirituality without stereotypes, religion without ranting. Love it. And uh, yeah, it's it's terrific. She's been featured in the New York Times and on PBS. Um, she's, she, her, her work is just really funny and kind of lighthearted. 
Um, she pulls a lot from her personal life. Um, she's taught preaching at Chicago Theological Seminary, the University of Chicago Divinity School, uh, Yale Divinity School, and uh, and and she. I love her little her little note on the back of her book here where it says, uh, "But she can't be held responsible for everyone who falls asleep in church." So <laughs> she is a dynamite preacher too. Yes. So if you are like me, you know, a uh, consumer of you know various sermons, you just love to hear a good sermon. I still love just the art of sermonizing, just yeah. you know, good talks. Like even TED talks to me are like oh, sermons about science. It and is an art, education yeah. and design. Um, she is absolutely brilliant. Did you listen to the one on um, where where she talks about divorce within yes. her? Yes. It, it's it's a brilliant sermon. There's a there's several sermons she has out there that you should check out. Um, and, and she's just a, a tremendous writer on top of that. She is. So like she's written for uh, like Huffington Post, Christian Century, uh, Relevant Magazine, et cetera, et cetera. But she's just a brilliant writer. Yep. Um, equally great speaker. So ton of fun. Check she's, it out. She's got the kind of attitude that we really like too, where you know what? Obviously we've got a podcast about really nerdy, you <laughs> know, deep things about life. You know, the idea of God and how God and religion and spirituality intersects with all these other areas, you know, philosophy, psychology, science, politics, all these different things. This is a big deal, but we we try not to act like it's that big of a deal at the same time. Like, you know, you got to have fun with it. Like you can't take it too seriously. And Lillian Daniel does an amazing job of being educated, experienced, brilliant, strong, and fun. Yes. And funny and lighthearted and whimsical and winsome. Yeah, her first email response to me was like, so what do you guys do for a living, like full-time, and if you could be any animal, what would you be? <laughs> and I was like, I like her already. Yeah, super fun, And man. of course Just, responded. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, so you guys are going to get that in spades in this interview, and hopefully you go out and get this book. Um, for those of you that you know do still belong to a church, and you, you feel, if you're listening to this podcast, there might be a degree of restlessness about the whole idea of church. This is a great book to go out and get, a great conversation to listen to. And for those of you, for whatever reasons, you had to peace out, this is a hopeful book that kind of says, like, you know, there's a lot wrong out there, but there's also a lot right. And you can find places that have, got, have a little better balance of what can be done right versus, you know, what can be done wrong. So, so much to take away here. Great conversation. And... um what else you got? Yeah, um, just to thank you to all of our new, we got some uh, new Patreon supporters that, that, that hopped on the train within the last like uh, few weeks. So thank you guys so much. Um, again, as always, if I owe you something and have not shipped it out yet, and it's been a, uh, a while, then most likely you need to remind me. <laughs> so, and specifically, specifically if it's t-shirts, if I owe you a t-shirt, I cannot ship you one unless I know which one you want and what size. So, uh, so let me know. Uh, but thank you guys so, so much. You guys have no idea, uh, how huge that is. And, uh, also as always, like, um, you know, the musical guests that we use on the show, continue to support them and follow us on Spotify. We have a playlist. Uh, we're also on Spotify now, yes, which we are. is crazy. So you'll find our podcast on Spotify and you'll find our Spotify playlist. So it's a beautiful thing. Check them both out. So for now, we got some fresh squeezed juice for you on the Deconstructionist podcast. So get ready for Lillian freaking Freakin Daniel. Daniel.
stoked about your work. We love the kinds of conversations that you're starting. We happen to like to start conversations too, so it was only a matter of time before we would all hang out together. So welcome to the Deconstructions podcast. Let's have a conversation. Thanks. So one of the things we like to, to do to start out um, you know, the, the, the interview here um, is to have you talk a little bit about your background. You have a very cool like kind of story in terms of your upbringing, a very, very cultured background. So uh, tell people a little bit about, you know, your upbringing, um, you know, whether or not you were raised in a religious household and, and, and how you um, ended up in the work that you do today. Sure. Um, well, I was raised in the Anglican tradition, so I'll leave it to you to decide whether or not that's religious or not. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, l- let's see, well, my parents were um, from Tennessee and South Carolina, and uh, they they met during the civil rights movement. My dad was a journalist covering the civil rights movement in Atlanta, Georgia. They actually didn't think they could have children. And so he signed up to cover the Vietnam War, which was the big story for a journalist of the day. Mm. And my mother was going to go with him to Saigon. And then as she was seeing him off at the airport, she discovered she was pregnant with me. And so instead of going to Vietnam, she and I she took me when I was just a little baby and she had never been out of the country in her life and moved to Japan. And, um, from then on, I lived in like Japan, Thailand, India, the Philippines, Hong Kong, London, grew up overseas and eventually came back to the States. But really for me, it felt like the first time in the ninth grade when we moved into the suburbs of Washington, DC. And I, you know, suddenly was at like a 2,400 person big public high school in America having had this weird upbringing. Wow. I feel like you should have a really cool accent though. Like, I feel like you got gypped on that end. <laughs> you know what? If I were a pretentious person, I would have an accent. <laughs> right. Cause you know, like those people who go for like one semester to Ireland and they have an accent forever. <laughs> yes. Yes. Listen, if we talk to Pete so Rollins I really I used to- long enough, oh. I, get an, I, I develop an accent. I st- <laughs> Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. No, so I apparently, I mean, I know I used to have an English accent, but I was a bit of a chameleon. We moved all the time. And so I think I wanted to fit in and I would, you know, kind of try to adapt to wherever we were because we were always so transient. Well, we definitely have that in common. I get that. Oh, really? I get that. Are you seven on the Enneagram? Yes. How did you know that? I can, we can smell our own, Lillian. (laughs) Oh, no. Did you listen to that Enneagram podcast I did? <laughs> no, I didn't, actually. No, I did, though, so oh. I knew the answer. Oh, really? Yeah. I just took a shot in the dark. I figured those, those really everything good. you just said I can relate to, and I'm a seven, so I figured it was likely. Yeah, no, with Ian Crone and Susan Stabile, it was actually, and it was because I was invited to be on that podcast that I had to figure out, A, what the Enneagram was, and B, <laughs> what my type was, and... Uh, yeah, so as I'm reading like their book and all that, I'm like, what type are you where you don't care what types of people, you know, anybody else is and you just want to know what you are and cut to the chase. And so yeah, yeah. figured it. 
Man, that's... <laughs> no, it's actually really interesting. I really enjoyed reading it and learning about it. Yeah, it's really caught fire, hasn't it? It has. It has. I mean, sometimes, you know, when people ask me about that, like in a very serious tone, I want to respond by saying things like, I'm a Scorpio. Yes. Just to, you know, just to be irritating. Just to mess with but, them. Yeah, because people get so serious about things. But I love the way the two of them talk about it because they're hilarious. And they use it as a tool, but it's very like self-deprecating and fun. Yeah, yeah. I really, I, I have encountered their work a little bit. And then I like the way that like Richard Rohr talks about it. Um, yes. But I do think that so many people are just rushing to it to be the, the next decoder ring to help everybody understand everybody once and for all. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're always trying to become like fundamentalists about something in the church yes. and this could be the next thing it, it i think it i think it's already there like if you say i haven't taken the enneagram to any like progressive christian at this point you are like dead right. you're dead to them <laughs> yeah no you're right it's like it's like saying i've never reflected on anything important in my life you know it's kind of like a while back having a spiritual director became the big thing for protestants you know oh, and yeah. they would ask you if you're they'd be like you don't have a spiritual director. And it was kind of like saying like, you know, you start drinking at breakfast and just like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. Am, like am I'm I crazy. Not... I'm out of control. So, <laughs> that is so funny. Oh my gosh. I'm surrounded by ones or so now, by sevens. I'm a one. So yeah, you are surrounded by sevens. I just want to fix both of you. That's, I think, <laughs> I think that's my thing. Right. <laughs> Oh. Yep. <laughs> this yep. is going to be a fun conversation. Let, <laughs> let's hear more about you, though. How, what's, what about your like spiritual life growing up, and how did you become a pastor? Because you are the Reverend Lillian Daniel. Yeah, yeah. So allegedly, right? <laughs> um, so I grew. Yeah, I. I mean, you could psychologize it and say what drew me to the church first, because I am sort of contrary to my generation and cohort. I have always loved. Um, that sort of, you know, piece of the Christian family that is the old school, historic, mainline, traditional church. And probably, you know, you could say I grew up in a chaotic family, moving around all the time. And wherever we'd go, we'd go to church. And that was my constant. And particularly to be in the Anglican church or the Episcopal church, where you're reading out of the same book every Sunday you're always having the same weak tea and like these little white bread sandwiches with ham and butter on them. And there was just kind of a comfort to that, uh, culturally speaking. And, and then a transcendence of the worship. I mean, I definitely felt a connection with divine in those settings. So later, you know, I went, went to school and um, to college and became a religion major. That, and that promptly led me to, you know, believe I should be an atheist because that's kind of how it goes. Right. <laughs> But then, uh, as one does, you know, I moved from atheism to thinking maybe I was like a Buddhist or a Quaker, and uh, you know, and today, like people say that stuff to me, and I'm like, does any does any Quaker think you're a Quaker? Because that would seem important. But I was one of those people who read like one book on being a Quaker and was like, I consider myself a Quaker. Um, and then I applied to divinity school, but I had this hankering to become a minister but I never told anyone in the church. And so then I applied. I was all set to go to Yale Divinity School, not really clear why. And I uh, told the priest at my father's church, and they said, oh, you've done it all wrong. You should have met with us first and gone through this whole process. You, you can't go off to school. It will offend everyone. So I canceled my plans, and I entered into their process with meetings with the bishop and 
all of that. And um, at the end of that summer, they turned me down and said uh, that I had no discernible gifts for parish ministry whatsoever. Ouch. Wow. Yeah. And that was, you know, kind of brutal. And uh, so then I didn't know what to do. You know, I mostly, I thought I'd sort of lie, you know, in my old bedroom in my mother's house and eat potato chips all day until she insisted I move out and get a job. But I was really sort of, you know, at sea. And then in those um, next couple of years, I discerned that I still felt like I was called to go to divinity school. I went anyway, sort of unsure why I was going. And that's where I discovered the congregational tradition, the congregational church, old New England, you know, came from the, the pilgrims and the Mayflower and all that, that sense of history and tradition. But also it was combined with, with a real respect and openness for the role of the pastor's teacher and scholar. And I loved that. And that's where I ended up going and getting ordained. That's amazing. Beautiful. So, so you have this new book out uh, that I love. It's called Tired, Tired of Apologizing for a Church I Don't Belong to. And so I, I have to thank my dad again for this one. He uh, snuck this one into uh, one of his many gift baskets of, of books that he, that he brings me. But um, you have this story that I, I that resonated with me uh, personally at the beginning of the book where you talk about apologizing to the Sikh man in the grocery store. And mm-hmm. especially in today's political climate, I, I often, I, that resonated with me because I, I often have the same instinct where I, I want to go up to people of other uh, religions and other uh, cultural backgrounds. And I have this intense urge to be like, hey, not, not all of us Christians are closed-minded, gated community Christians like you see in the news. And just preemptively mm-hmm. let them know, like, hey, we're not all like that. Um, so what, what right. was it? Yeah, what was it specifically that, that uh, was the inspiration behind writing a book like this? So I think this sounds, I've learned that this story sounds strange to people who were raised, say, in an evangelical church or a more fundamentalist church. But I was not raised in that tradition. So I was really raised in a Christianity where... Um, you were not meant to try to convert other people. That was sort of the ethos. You understood that you weren't meant to do that. And um, I didn't, you know, worry about the souls of my Jewish friends, for example, or growing up overseas, my parents were very open to the teachings of other religions. And I never thought, oh, I've got to convert them, right? And it was only later when I got into high school and college, I started to realize that many people's perception of Christianity was what they saw on television or Jerry Falwell or some televangelist, you know, where there's like a horrible natural disaster somewhere in the world. And there's some, you know, idiot minister on television saying, oh, they brought this on themselves because of their sinfulness. And all of a sudden I was like, holy cow, that's what people think Christians are like. And then I did that thing, which was sort of apologizing all over myself and learning that that was sort of what we did in the more open-minded pieces of Christianity. And what it really ended up being was you just stayed in the closet. You know, you'd say, oh, I disapprove of that too. And then people would say, Christianity, religion is responsible for all the wars in history. And you sort of learn to say, if you're, you know, around educated people, like, oh, I know, let me one-up you. You know, how about the, how about the Inquisition? How about the Salem witch trials? You yeah. know, I've got worse stories for you. And then to sort of say, like, I'm so sorry for that. You know, we're not like that. We, um, But there's a little bit of an insincerity about it, because sometimes when p- 
people are saying, we are not like that other kind of church. The implication is those other people are bad Christians, and we're superior, and you'll know how superior we are by our humility in that we're apologizing. Mm, yeah. So humility becomes the new superiority. Yeah, yeah. And then ultimately, I think it just becomes a situation where you're not even apologizing. You're just not talking about anything to do with your faith life. So the dominant public story of Christianity in North America becomes, you know, movies like Footloose or, you know, the angry mob of Christians who are, you know, making somebody feel terrible and the hypocritical minister and et cetera, et cetera. And those of us who, you know, weren't part of churches like that at all, which I think is, you know, 95% of the people, um, we all just get really quiet. And if it comes up, we're like, I know, I'm really sorry. You know, man, that's so thanks good. for sharing that. Yeah. And the problem with it, I mean, the problem with it, there's many problems with it. One, I think it's sort of an insincere thing. Secondly, I think it's not really respectful. Like when people say, this is what I'm angry about or whatever, if we just go, yeah, I know, I'm really sorry, but we don't really mean that. Like we don't think that's really talking about us. We're not being respectful of that person and engaging them. And then lastly, if there is a different story to tell about Christianity, if you do have an experience that's different, we need to tell each other about it. That's the reason these other images dominate in the media. I mean, we can obsess about who gets on TV and who doesn't, but the reality is if all of us talked about our faith in an open way with people and told a different story, they couldn't get away with having that nutjob pastor on TV every time. That is so true. I love your, um, I love your story about your, your multi-faith moment at Marshall's. <laughs> I love this, uh, this Sikh gentleman that you, you know, learned a lot from in, in a moment, um, going through a range of emotions, you know, with him. Yeah. And um, I wonder if you just kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, how that opened, yeah. opened your eyes in some way. Yeah, so we're standing in line at Marshall's, which if you've ever gone to Marshall's or a discount store, you're standing in line a long time, right? (laughs) And we get in this, you know, really intimate conversation where we start talking about how he wants to go visit um, a a sick family member in London, and she's dying, and he can only afford one ticket. And does he go now to see her, or does he wait for the funeral? And, you know, we end up having this deep conversation where I end up talking about events that I wish I had gone to and had missed and all this kind of thing. And at the end of the conversation, as we're called to the cash register, I say, I'll pray for you. And when I say that to him, this man who's wearing a turban, so, you know, it's clear that he's of the Sikh religion, he kind of recoils from me. And I have this moment where I think, oh no, I've ruined our interaction. And later, um, you know, we bump into each other again. And I just start apologizing. I go, I'm so sorry. I said, I pray for you. I'm so sorry for all the, the Christians who say they pray for you when they mean to convert you. I didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry for how the Sikh people have been treated throughout history. I'm sorry that your aunt is so sick. I'm sorry that you can't afford two tickets. I'm sorry for the high cost of healthcare. I'm sorry for the line at Marshall's. And he basically starts laughing and he's like, you're responsible for all of that. And <laughs> It ends up that he thanks me for saying that I would pray for him. And it it is this moment of connection, but it kind of highlights the tension that we both felt in that moment, because I'm sure he did think 
when I just said, I'll pray for you, he, he might've thought, wow, is that where this is going? Are you going to pray for my soul as if I'm not good enough as I am? Oh, wow, man. I mean, that, that sums up so much. Cause I, you know, I think, um, you know, when I first started engaging with your work, I, you know, my initial reaction was, but there is a lot to apologize for. And, and then when I started mm-hmm. to understand where you were coming from, I was like, you're right. Why are we always trying to take accountability for all this stuff we had nothing to do with? As if I'm going to take accountability yeah. for like what Constantine did and, you know, what happened in 300 AD. Like, right, right. And often, you know, there's a little bit of an agenda there too, because we're, we're thinking, okay, I'll apologize for the Crusades and I'll apologize for all these other things. Oh, but by the way, like I'll do your gay wedding, Bet that caught you off guard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a little disingenuous, right? Or guess what? We have women ministers or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I do always feel though, that I, I have to make it clear. And I've learned this since writing the book that there are times when the church has to apologize and there are beautiful examples of that throughout history. Um, I find that it's always easier to see important things when I'm not in my own context and notice things more in other places. And Mm. so times where I've gone to speak to churches in Canada, I've been really moved by the whole movement where the church has apologized um, to, to native people in Canada for these, these church schools that really um, were abusive and erased people's stuff, you know, and like, that's the kind of thing where you say, it's not that you shouldn't apologize for that, but it's this sort of knee-jerk apologizing for, for everything and giving over the whole argument of religion and just being silenced and quiet because you don't want to deal with what the other person is saying. Right by this broken heart that tells me that I'm afraid to feel the pain that helps me to find Yeah, one of the one of the things that the feelings I got from from reading your your book was that it's it's uh it's more like refocusing your apologies on on more your sphere of influence. So as opposed to apologizing for I think at one point you you mentioned uh you know it's it's easy to apologize for the Salem witch trials cuz you didn't burn any witches. But right. It's a lot harder to say like, you know what? In my particular church, the church that I have influence in, uh, we didn't do a very good job of reaching out to you in a moment Mm -hmm. of need. Yeah. Yeah. But before we start that kind of apologizing, um, this is another thing that I like to talk about is that the reasons that people have for checking off none, N-O-N-E as their religion, right? On a survey. And that's obviously a growing number. The reason people have for doing that It's a whole host of reasons. And I came up with four categories, and I think they're kind of helpful. There's the no way, the no longer, the never have, and the not yet. And the no way is somebody who's angry at the church. They've probably got a terrible story to tell you, and it's a real negative, abusive thing. Like, they have 
a reason to say, no way, I am not interested, right? And then there's the no longers who kind of drift away, uh, maybe say they don't miss it, life changes, kids graduate, what have you. But a lot of times when you scratch beneath the surface with those no longers who say they just drifted, there's often some hurt there too, like they were on an, a nasty committee or something you know, like that. Um, and then often the children of those people will be this category of the never haves and not yet. So their parents may be angry or hurt by the church, and there may well you know, be a very good, good case to be made about what, what happened to them and how wrong it was, right? Um, but their kids have not experienced religious community at all. And I think that in that sliver of the family that we might call mainline, historic, Protestant denominations, uh, we address all our arguments about why religious community matters as if we are talking to somebody who is a no way, somebody who has been injured by some other kind of church. And when we talk like that, and the person listening to us actually has never experienced religious community at all, I think it sounds bizarre. It's like we're answering a whole bunch of accusations and questions that they haven't even asked. Yeah. So, I mean, an example would be, you know, like somebody moves into your street or whatever, and they're like, oh, I'm just getting settled. You know, what's a good bakery? What's a good dry cleaner? Oh, you know, do you go to church? And people in the in the sort of historic main line will be like, I can recommend a dry cleaner and a bakery, and they won't say anything about church. And then, you know, if pressed, they might be like, well, yeah, I go somewhere. But like, and when the person says, what do you, you know, what's it like? What do you get out of it? They'll be like, well, I'll tell you what it's not like. You know, we can have a woman minister. And the person's like, okay, but what is it like? Well, I'll tell you what we don't do. Like, you know, well, what does the minister talk about in the sermon? Well, I'll tell you what she doesn't say. She doesn't tell you what you have to believe. Well, okay, but what, you know, and it's like we're incapable of making a positive statement because we're so used to apologizing and then trying to lure in the person who's been hurt with the startling news that we're not like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I was reflecting on that as I was, you know, wrestling with your book and, um, you kind of you kind of make this point in in certain places, I, I think, and you know, a lot of times I'm very wrong, so <laughs> you you never know. I, I I might be I might be uh, completely like I feel like your chapter religion is real as you are kind of talks about this a little bit, but I feel like a lot of times these people apologize, and I've been one of them in the past, and I realized actually being a part of this podcast project has helped me grow up a ton in my faith uh, from older ways of of looking at this, and I feel like I don't really apologize anymore. John and I have had multiple conversations. That's why we were stoked about your work because um, it grabbed us just even from the title. But these people apologize, I think, because there's um, maybe even an unaware sense of shame. You know, there's, yes. there's this shame that's like, uh, you know, it's like well, anytime you apologize for anything like, you know, neurotically, it's, it's probably because you're feeling some kind of shame, but you haven't even really wrestled through why that actually is. So I'm wondering, my question for you is, is it possible that we feel religious shame um, Mm -hmm. even because we haven't honestly engaged with our own faith? You know, so do we, do we feel shame because we've never become truly comfortable in any real way 
with where we are. Yes. And I think we've bought into a false binary where the only two options are you are a Bible thumping, you know, believer who does whatever your cultish leader instructs you to do and votes the way they tell you. And, you know, uh, you're that kind of Christian, right? Um, who's trying to convert everybody or you're a spiritual, but not religious, enlightened, you know, agnostic, like those are the options, right? And the educated people go one way and, you know, you and, and we've bought into that. But the truth is most of us don't live in those stereotypical worlds. Churches are diverse places where you have all different levels of education and, and theology and belief, but we've bought into the false binary. Yeah. And I think it's, it's hurtful to everybody. It's hurtful to everybody. Yeah. One, one of the things that you bring up in the book uh, that, that I think kind of, kind of flows with this, this idea is you talk about kind of the history of Christianity, especially within, you know, the Western, the Western sense um, where agnostics or atheists uh, were never really given an, you know, an opportunity to be honest about their doubts and their struggles. And so they were kind of pushed, pushed off into a corner. And and I saw this firsthand. I mean, growing up in a uh, very traditional denominational church, you know, like I, I started laughing when I was reading that section of your book because we used to refer to them as uh, CEs or ECs, you know, Easter Christian, uh, Easter Christmas yeah. Christians, right? Right. And, right. And, and when pressed, they would probably say, oh, yeah, I'm Lutheran, I'm Methodist, whatever. But, but as you say in the book, like now, you know, they're just now starting to get to the point where they can be honest and say, yeah, I don't really know what I believe. I don't know if I believe anything. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting. Yeah. Oh, go, yeah, go ahead. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. No, I think I think you're right on. So the book I wrote previous to this was called When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough, uh, Finding God in Surprising Places, Even the Church. And uh, some of the pieces in that book, you know, sort of uh, a bit took aim at or poked fun at the person who finds God in the sunset and says, I'm spiritual but not religious, and I don't believe in organized religion, and they kind of talk to you as if you are a part of the church, like you're some sort of brainwashed idiot, right? And they sort of imply that, like, we wouldn't see God in the sunset, you know, like we're these sort of limited people who think, you know, God is at our church at 10 a.m. on Sunday and nowhere else, you know, and not in nature or something, right? So I kind of, you know, and when I wrote that book afterwards, you know, of course, I heard from a lot of spiritual but not religious people, and uh, and I loved that dialogue with them. And they, they generally said they appreciated my taking on some of those questions and doing it in what I thought was a humorous way. What was fascinating, though, was the critique I received from other Christians in, um, in parts of the Christian family that perceived themselves as welcoming, accepting. And they said, Lillian, in the name of Christianity, you were just mean to these people. And, you know, our program of growth has been to consistently and neurotically apologize <laughs> and then not say anything about what we believe or care about, and then just to exude niceness and they will come, right? And by making a case for why religious community matters, you've scared them all away. And it was so interesting. Like, I heard that accusation, but it was always from clergy and people, you know, in the church. The actual people on the edges 
or who were curious or saying that thought the pieces were funny and engaging. And they were like, finally, somebody's willing to kind of have this conversation with me. Like, because they wanted to have the conversation of, you know, if you don't believe that I'm going to go to hell if I don't go to your church, right? If my eternal salvation does not depend upon my going to your church, um, why would you invite me? if it's not to be brainwashed or to start more wars in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the conversation I think they want to have is, you know, when you're sitting in church and singing these old hymns with these weird words, what is moving you? Or when the minister's standing up there during the prayers, who does the minister think he's talking to? You know, and what do you think, and who are you talking to? Like, those are the questions they want to hear. And instead, we say things like, well, let me tell you who he's not talking to. He's not talking to a white father god with a beard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so are you suggesting, Lillian, that be, by, by having authentic, real conversations with the nuns, that that is more uh, fruitful and, and constructive than um, making sure that they understand how cool our worship service is? <laughs> yeah. yeah, or how politically correct we are. Yeah. you know, my worship oh, pastor my has tattoos. I just want you guys to know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know, that world is a whole world unto itself. And I, I wasn't raised up in that um, that evangelical sort of hipster pastor, you know, world. And and I think for a lot of the nuns who haven't experienced religious community, it actually is really confusing to them. Because they, they look at the churches, and they might look at a church like mine, which is an urban downtown church founded in 1839 with stained glass windows and beautiful towers and, um, you know, about as welcoming as a, you know, as like a funeral parlor from the outside, you know. Uh, it's beautiful to me, but, you know, to somebody who's never been in, it's forbidding, right? Um, they look at that, and they think that seems intimidating. And then they go to like the you know, the church that's in the warehouse that calls itself like the voyage or the journey or whatever. And, you know, they have like the kind of fake um, loft decor with, you know, the exhaust pipes and the ceiling and they're sitting at tables having coffee. And and uh, they think, well, that's going to be the open-minded church where the pastor has tattoos and cute glasses. And it takes them a couple years before they ask questions like, wait, like, what would you do with a gay teenager? Like, where would you send them? And why can't women be in leadership, you know? And they they probably would be surprised to know that inside some of these very traditional buildings, there would be an enormous openness to, to ideas of inclusivity and also like an intellectual rigor, you know, where we would be talking about Judaism and Islam and other traditions. So, you know, I don't blame the the people, the nuns who've never experienced it, but I do think that we get in our own way when we have this opportunity to have a conversation with them, and all we do is apologize for the Salem witch trials. You know, I think that one of the things that I just noticed, because, you know, really what John and I do is, you know, we just kind of read a lot, listen to a lot of content, watch a lot of content, and just kind of watch what's going on. Just like, what's going on mm-hmm. out, out there? <laughs> we just talk about it. In yeah. Well, like, what's going on out there? And I think one of the things that I noticed that just fascinated me is, you know, Rob Bell leaves his church in, in Michigan and doesn't stop talking about what he believes. He doesn't stop talking about, you know, he just released a book on the Bible. 
like a freaking three mm-hmm. three hundred page book on like reflections on the Bible. And he's doing like tours. He doesn't have any problem talking about what he believes and not apologizing for anybody that's doing it differently or whatever. He's just so magnetic and attractive to so many people because he's just having fun and engaging with something that he obviously draws a lot of life and vitality from because you can just see it. And one of the things that we talked about when we were with him is just like, you just don't seem worried about like all the noise, all the arguments, all the, and he's just like, ah, it's boring. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because, um, I'm guessing there probably were times when he was worried and it wasn't received as easily or as well. And that might have something to do with the fact that he is not serving in church right now. Yeah. No, no, no. Right? T- totally get your point. Yeah. I'm just saying that that's not his yeah. platform. His platform. Uh, yeah. And I, I so agree. And I think, th- and I th- I think what he does so well is he just um, explains things in a really clear and compelling way and says, here's the gifts of this. And he doesn't, you know, go down that road of, yeah, rehearsing everything that's wrong with it first. Yep. That's what he does. Yeah, so well. That's my point. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But I want to say also, I mean, one of the problems with attracting people to religious community is the other people who are in the religious community. Totally agree. You know, because we're all human beings. So, yes, there are these people who've been hurt or injured by religious community in profound ways, and that is something that, you know, needs to be worked through and talked about. But for the people who haven't been injured by religious community, when we invite them in, we really should probably say, you haven't been injured yet, because we will get to you. Oh, man, that's so good. (laughs) Yeah. You know, any, any community that you let human beings in is going to be screwed up. Yep. And we would be so much better at this Jesus thing if we could keep all the human beings out of the organization. Yep. Oh, man. Yeah. Add, add and, a- but, you know, yeah. I do think, though, that, like, that, that is part of the—I um, think this is now, like, the work of, of novelists and poets. And I think, actually, lay leaders— are the best ones to talk about this, where they describe the but still of what I just said. Yes. And it is that ineffable beauty of being a part of a tradition that is older and bigger than you are and sitting next to the person whose baby is screaming and you can't hear the message and you're frustrated about that. And this other person over here is has not taken a shower and that's irritating you. And Meanwhile, you're probably irritating somebody else just by existing. And somehow we're all sitting in these really uncomfortable, tiny wooden pews in this weird building and doing it together. Yeah. Why? Why? And I think it's like that's where the rubber hits the road. It's easy to have deep thoughts about um, the goodness of all people when you're by yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not hard. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to cost you anything. Yeah there's, yeah, there's no risk there either. Yeah. Know? No, totally. Yeah. Yeah. But at, at some point, though, like, I think, you know, if you've ever been really in the, in the doldrums, really in crisis, really struggling, and I've had this experience, and when that happens to me, as somebody who's clergy, what I do is I go undercover to some other church, and I'm, I'm that nightmare church visitor who comes in late 
cries the whole service, leaves <laughs> early. You know, I don't want to give you my email. I don't want to hear about your programs. I don't want to shake the minister's hand. You know, I want to know that God loves me in my wretchedness. And I want to be moved by other people singing and other people praying. And yep. a lot of times, you know, yeah, you have to be in this very uncomfortable, different place to experience that. And so many clergy never put themselves in that position. Mm. They're always on, you know, even when they do like the small group at their house that they pretend that they're like really a member of, they're always on. When they confess a weakness, it's always some fake weakness, you know, like, oh, I'm a chocoholic. Like, yeah, that's a huge problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think people in the pews are like, really? Like, that's the worst problem you have? Like, I can't talk to you about pornography. Like, you're, you know, your struggle is chocolate chip cookies. Right. Uh, I just, yeah, my pro- yeah. my problem is I'm just, I'm just too honest with people. I'm just too vulnerable. Yeah. Shut yeah, or, up. No, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm too ambitious. I'm too ambitious for the I'm Lord. Too, I'm too ambitious. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah I, I'm too ambitious I struggle. I struggle with making my... ministry an idol. <laughs> oh, yes. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I, so this is the worst though. I'm not good at self-care. Oh, oh, geez. Such a martyr. Like, just shoot me. Like, when (laughs) did self-care get elevated as a Christian practice? Like, if you look at the sins and stuff, like, that'd probably be like, wow, that would probably not seem like a good thing, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But, but, you know, yeah, it's like back to like, yeah, why don't you have a spiritual director? Yeah, (laughs) right. You don't. I am a yeah. spiritual director, and yeah. I have a why spiritual director. Yeah, why don't you, why don't you know your enneagram type? Practice And by the way, you do want to shake the minister's hand because you're a seven. You have to make yourself not shake the minister's hand. <laughs> no, I want to like spy on the church and know, take it I'm all in, and, and then write about it. And you know, that's yeah, so that's yeah. so great. Meanwhile, I'm just critiquing the sermon the entire time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Like, here's how yeah. I would have done it better, even though I've never done one in my life. You know, yeah, I get yeah. it. I realize Actually, that. I mean, well, that is hard. Like, I mean, that's often what I am doing or impulsively or like uh, just sort of knee-jerk reaction. I find that I'm counting the attendance. Like, why am I counting someone else's attendance? What's wrong with me? Oh, wow. I get it. I like it. Yeah. yeah. I get it, man. Once you know, a pastor, always like a pastor. I get it. I totally get it. Yeah, I mean, so I have, I've had the great experiences when I've, you know, gone through periods of vocational crisis and discernment, and I'll end up, like, in these other people's churches. And I was in this um, Catholic church in Madison, Wisconsin, um, that it turns out, I think, was a very conservative, very conservative church, though it had all that, like, hipster vibe to it in a sort of high church Catholic way, Um but, you know, there was like all these announcements that kind of indicated this you know, sort of different agenda. But I was there and I was glad to be there. And next thing you know, it was like um, Maundy Thursday and we're all marching downstairs and then we're in the basement and we're like scrunching around on our knees, like worshiping this monstrance in the basement, crawling on our knees. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? You know, <laughs> and I thought this is this is how people feel when they come to my church. They're like what the hell are you doing here? And, and, you know, I probably looked like everybody else there. Like I thought it was normal to be like crawling around on my knees in this basement and like worshiping who knows what was in that little box. I was terrified to know, but, uh, you know, that's how weird it felt. And, 
And yet I could sort of finally put it all aside and say, God is being worshipped in some way here, and I need to get over myself. And there's probably a good reason why I'm being forced to crawl around and worship something in a box where I don't know what's in it, uh, because it's not all about me. And it's not all about my head and my brain and whatever institutional branch of the family I think I represent. That is, that is so good. It reminds me of something that uh, I was really impacted by when I was reading uh, one of Karen Armstrong's books where she was talking about the original point of you know, early religion and even Christianity was um, the Latin, or it's Greek maybe, ex, ecstasis, which is to, to get out of yourself, to be pulled yes. out of yourself. And I think, yeah. I think we miss that quite a bit when we're always, you know, hyper critiquing and, you know, hyper apologetic and, you know, use the word neurotic a lot. And I actually like that because nobody uses that word anymore. And I love that word because I think it's so exactly what's going on. And, uh, and yeah, it's not about like, this is supposed to be helping us grow in things like compassion, understanding, empathy, which is all things that pull us out of ourselves. And instead of just demonizing and caricaturizing everybody and, you know, how stupid is that? the culture of critique. It's our knee jerk reaction. Oh yeah. You know, Oh, I'm feeling vulnerable. Oh, I'll just criticize everything. I do think it's one reason though, why, um, like North Americans will be so drawn to other religions is first, like if it's in another language, they have no idea what's being said on their behalf. Like, so they can kind of let go, you know, they're not critiquing they're like, Oh, that was so, so beautiful. You know, that was so wonderful. And that was so so different from what I experienced. And it's like, well, yeah, it helps if you can't understand the language and you don't know anything about the tradition and you're just watching it and you can map onto it, whatever you want, but also maybe get caught up in something beautiful and let the Holy Spirit move in a way that when you're constantly critiquing or when you've been injured and you're like defending, you know, uh, it's harder. So I don't know. I think that, that worship is a practice that takes skill and commitment, just like anything else. Yeah. And for us to tell people, um, hey, come to our worship service, like, it'll feel just like everything else in your life. You know, I, I would think, well, I hope not. You know, why should I go then? You know, oh, hey, come, you'll hear like all the same music you could hear like at the mall, you know. Well, then why would I go? And I think there's something to saying, this will be very strange, and you'll feel like you're rubbing against the culture that you live in, and you'll be asked to consider a text in a really serious way from another time that makes no sense to you. And there's a learning curve, and there'll be um, you know, some knowledge imparted, and maybe certain things will make sense to you in a way that they wouldn't before you knew anything. And in every other area of our lives, we respect that. You know, we'll say, I want my child to appreciate art, so I'm going to take them to an art museum, and I'm going to take them through and talk about the paintings and tell them why this matters. I'm not just going to drop them off and say, like, hey, this is going to feel like as much fun as, like, the trampoline place. <laughs> this is you know. like the play place at McDonald's. Like, almost exactly. <laughs> exactly, you know. And in sports and stuff, you know, or like learning a musical instrument, you know, it's not going to be fun to just pick up the violin and try to play it. Like, that's not going to be pleasurable. The beauty comes in, you know, making some kind of commitment and you don't learn to enjoy listening to the violin without somebody taking you through it. So, I mean, this is, this is so not, you know, user-friendly, if you will, but 
I really believe in the learning curve and the expectation that worship is catechesis. And when you say catechesis, then you got to define what that is. But it's like, that's how you learn and form. And everything has to happen now in worship because nobody's going to sign up for your denominational welcome class or your new member seminar, your Bible study. You get one shot in worship. And so if you got people crawling around in the basement or singing praise songs, whatever, just make sure you're teaching and explaining it as you go so that people don't feel small and stupid or excluded. But also, don't, don't sell them the idea that this should feel normal and easy. I think that what I'm picking here's so here's what I identify in the difference in the way that you're laying this out and that a lot of people either choose not to talk about it or become overly apologetic about it if they're if in, mm-hmm. if they're in some kind of a faith stream and it comes to actually talking about it with somebody else the difference that I pick up on is you're owning it you're you you have encountered and and thought through and um struggled with and, and maybe even fought with or, you know, tasseled with all the things that you're talking about and you have weighed them and you have, uh, you know, looked at like what it means to you and, and what it's supposed to do. And like, you're, you're present with it. You're being deliberate. You're being intentional. I think that mm-hmm. to harken back to my er- earlier question, the shame that makes people either avoidant or apologetic is because they haven't done that. And one of the things that John and I are trying to invite people to do is stop this whole belief by proxy thing where you're basically just using religion to satiate some guilt or some shame that you feel and you're setting up some person or some denomination to just essentially do it for you. And so you just, yeah. kind, of, you just kind of mindlessly participate and then blame it if it doesn't do what you need it to do. And what you're yeah. saying is it is weird and you know it, it's, it's totally foreign and it's not... Uh, the pop station on the radio and it's not just your pop psychology self-help stuff it's it is strange and it is countercultural. but here's why it means something to me and here's why I find value in it and I don't know it's not perfect but yeah man I sure love it well well here and okay let's even go further right so in some ways like I'm an expert in how to make religion as unappealing as possible but I think better to do it on the front end absolutely so you could continue with that and say, and furthermore, it's not going to fix your problems. No. It's not going to fix your marriage. It's not going to solve your financial problems. Like, the people in church are not noticeably behaving at a whole higher quality than everybody else. It's like, I can't stand it when people will say, well, you should come to our church because the people are really nice. And it's like they're implying, like, unlike those sociopaths who go to yoga. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like, like it's, it's not that like, we can't sell it on those, um, pragmatic reasons. And, you know, it's, you know, you're still going to have your struggles, but here's what I would say. I appreciate once a week, there's a prayer of confession where I'm asked to reflect upon the week I've just had, whether I want to or not, and acknowledge those things I've done that I ought not to have done 
those things I left undone, which I ought to have done. And it's not, and the answer isn't that then I just like promise to do better because I'm going to be there with myself next week and I've probably done some of those things again. It's this idea that um, there's a transcendent loving God that knows everything you've done and still invites you to new life and to walk more closely with God. And, and that's beyond anything we accomplish or do. And it, it's, it's not only for sale in one building or one place, but boy, I don't think you, you get as much access to that uh, at a place that just says, everything you already feel, we're going to underscore, lift up, and meet you there. Mm. Like, if I were a fantastic person, that'd be a great church for me. Right. But, you know, I think I need to be shaped by something else. So, so what is some advice that you would give uh, folks? Like, uh, obviously, like, the, the neurotic apologizing isn't working for us. And yeah. the, uh, the, the pitch of the, the cool worship and the hipster pastor thing isn't exactly working either. And, and I know we've touched on, you know, authenticity and, and Adam and mm-hmm. I would wholeheartedly agree. We've talked about this before where we think that a lot of the people who email us and reach out to us and have had conversations with us and coffee with us, uh, the one thing that they keep that keeps resonating is it seems that they just want some sort of authenticity. So how do you, how do you uh, translate that into action? Yeah. And so I think it can't all fall on the pastor or the preacher, but that that person does have set a tone and um, there's the fake authenticity. There's the, you know, I'm a chocoholic authenticity, right? There's also a lot of churches, you know, there's the, we're all successful, therefore you should come because your marriage will get better or your financial situation, you know. Um, I sort of, it, it gets epitomized for me when I was at this, um, at this, I was preaching at this um, Southern denominational uh, retreat center that, uh, well, I'll just say what it is. It was Montreat. Um, Presbyterians love to go there. It's this beautiful, you know, cabins and this huge, like kind of Chautauqua setting. Um, and here the Presbyterians are going to stand in for like a lot of churches. But, you know, I was meeting with some of the people there before I was preaching and I was just wanting to get into stuff and learn more and everything was so proper. And the guy just kept saying in the Southern accent, like, Leon, we just so appreciate you. We just so appreciate you. And so I was like, well, thank you. But, you know, uh, you guys are voting like on, on Palestine and Israel. And like, how's that unfolding? You know? Leon, we just so appreciate you. We just so appreciate you. And I was like, gay marriage, like, you know, your nomination is splitting up over that. Like, how do you feel? You know, Leon, we just so appreciate your honesty. You're just so refreshing, you know. And they just kept saying, like, we just so appreciate you. And in that, like, Leon, you know. And I think that's not what people want. They want to know that, you know, okay, yeah, let's get into it about Palestine, Israel. Like, let's talk about it. We might disagree. Um, Let's, let's wrestle with that. But if you really appreciate someone, you appreciate what they're wrestling with and you acknowledge what you're wrestling with. So one of the more controversial chapters in the Tired of Apologizing book is called, I'm a pastor and I don't care what you believe. And I really do go through there where I talk about the fact that I think we have tons of people in churches when we recite a creed, the Apostles' Creed, or we talk about something and they think, 
I'm an imposter. Am I the only one here who doesn't believe this stuff? And this is a case where if we come from Christian traditions that have a history of the intelligent uh, layperson who interprets scripture for themselves and a scholar teacher, we really have to talk about this belief question and, and what are creeds. And they're not tests of faith. It's like a song. You know, it's, it's somebody's expression of faith and it's beautiful and we sing it and we recite it and it's like the hymns we sing. But there's nowhere in scripture where Jesus says, you have to believe my mother is a virgin. Right. Right. Like, we need to talk about that stuff with people and respect their intelligence and then make a case for why you still might say the Apostles' Creed or sing a hymn that is all about the blood of the Lamb, even though intellectually that's not a theology you believe in. And at the same time, why you might be moved to tears by a third grader playing the clarinet out of tune, but it's worship. You know, we're part of something bigger. Uh, and I think we've that kind of vulnerability around a lack of certainty, and then this is really, really hard for um, a lot of mainline, open-minded Christians, uh, is to accept the mystery and the Holy Spirit mm. and to consider the possibility that not everything depends upon our intellectual ascent and our brains. That is something I want you to talk a little bit more about, because you have a chapter on certainty, and if there's one thing that John and I have really picked up on, you know, over the last, I don't know, three years that we've been kind of hanging out and doing this sort of thing is that one of the sort of underlying problems that I think keeps, yeah. keeps nuns and spiritually not religious people at, at, at a stiff arm is they're expecting eventually to have to become pretty certain. And I think that, I think that even the yeah. title nun or spiritually not, re- not religious, my interpretation of that is you are open to the mysterious, you know there's more to this, mm-hmm. but you don't feel like you can ever say, oh, aha, I got it, and everybody else right. is wrong. And I think that, talk a little bit about like your chapter yeah. on uncertainty, because I think it's really, really important. Yeah, so, okay, briefly, like certainty, I'm against it. And <laughs> I think that with the question of belief, you have to respect the people who are there, and they're there to worship. They're, they're there to somehow experience the divine in a tradition bigger and older than they are in the company of other people. They're not there to make intellectual assent to dogma. So I can make a pretty compelling case, I think, for why religious community matters. And at the same time, I would genuinely be as delighted if someone read my book and decided to join a synagogue. Right. Like I would be fine with that. Um, so I, I really do think Christians have gotten hung up on the wrong thing. And that wrong thing is questions of dogma and belief that when you actually spend time digging into scripture and exploring what Jesus says, he doesn't talk about that. No. And intelligent people at some point are going to catch on to it. But then they worry, am I a hypocrite? Yeah. You know, because I'm here. And And for most of the history of the church, they weren't fundamentalists. They weren't obsessed with those questions of dogma. What they cared about was how you lived and acted and that you did worship, right? You worship something other than yourself. And for a lot of the time, they couldn't even understand the worship. It's in Latin. You know, you can't even understand the scripture. And the Reformation was a good corrective to that. But 
But part of what John Calvin talks about, you know, in, in his theology is the perspicuity of Scripture. And and what that means is that not only do we have the right to interpret Scripture for ourselves as lay people or individuals, we, ha- we have a responsibility to. And to do that, you have to put some effort and study into it. And somehow the Protestant church just got totally off course and decided that their job was that one person, the pastor, supposedly would study scripture, then throw a bunch of scripture at people like garbage, you know, and and tell them what to believe and what to do and who to vote for. And that couldn't be a bigger betrayal of of the gift that the Protestant Reformation brought. Yes. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally and completely agree. I, lo- I, lo- I love yeah. it when somebody's like, oh man, those people are Calvinists. I'm like, yeah, they're probably more Calvinists than John Calvin. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's hyper-Calvinism, exactly. And actually, yeah, I mean, one of the most valuable courses I did in divinity school, eye-opening, you know, was um, was studying a course on John Calvin, and I fell in love with John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards. And, yes. you know, I was that kind of, um, you know, religion major from a women's college, you know, where we were all feminists and all that, and probably one would have been one of those people's like, you know, I have like a real problem with Paul, you know, say things like that. Right. And, you know, you actually study these figures and yes, you put them in a historical context and you recognize the humanity and some of the stuff they get wrong, but there's also these incredible gifts that different branches of the Christian family bring. And, and that, that idea of understanding scripture in a scholarly way and interpreting it for ourselves and that in each moment because of the Holy Spirit, it can mean something new and different. That is very true to the spirit of the Reformation. For somebody to put a Bible verse on a bumper sticker, you know, and use it to beat somebody up on, that is a total betrayal. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's so, so yeah, and having so good. and having having said all that though, I I mean I really do believe every branch of the the family brings a gift, right? I mean, unless you're, you know, making people take a suicide pack and do something horrible, right? But like barring that. And so I've actually, you know, learned a lot about um, the gifts of more liturgical Catholic traditions where there's not as much emphasis on the preaching and the word, but there's a lot of catechesis and teaching that takes place visually mm-hmm. or in other ways, right? And I also think that, you know, the, the megachurches like really brought certain gifts. Like they, they clearly figured out there was a whole group of people who weren't going to come in the building or connect with that. And they, and they did their really hard work and they thought about stuff like parking lots and, you know, things like that. And, you know, so often when a church is smaller or whatever, you know, we'll be like, yeah, but we're, we're righteous, you know, cause we're not like those, those reprobates that like care about parking and hospitality. Right. You know, <laughs> and some of was, yeah, they really like, they thought about that. They tried to be excellent. I love it when, uh, you know, Bob Goff. So, uh, no. oh man, you got it. You got to read some Bob Goff sometime. Just what a breath of okay. fresh air. He, he gets accused of watering down the gospel a whole bunch. And he's like, well, yeah, of mm-hmm. course I'm watering down the gospel. People are thirsty. <laughs> exactly. And what was Jesus doing? <laughs> With, you know, Isaiah, right? Like he would have been yeah. accused of, oh, you're watering down Isaiah. You're watering down the teachings of the Pharisees. Like, yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, people are thirsty. And there's, <laughs> yeah, there's always like, 
the Reformation is ongoing. It's constantly being reconstructed, deconstructed. That's healthy, generative. And for us to sort of pretend that these things are preserved in stone and worship the thing itself, like the, the form of liturgy or whatever it is, that's not faithful. Nope. That's not faithful. But I think to say it's all horrible and like, hey, we're, you know, we're not your grandfather's church and we have this different name. Again, anytime you're kind of making the case for, for who you are by denigrating another group that you're not like, like you're probably on the wrong track. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like that's where we say the prayer confession every week. Yeah. Uh, Lillian yeah. freaking Daniel, everybody. <laughs> this is a free podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. This I know. is free. Wait, I'm not getting paid? You're not what? getting paid. <laughs> you got yeah, you gotta talk to our booking agent. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So before before we uh we wrap up our time together, we want people to go out and get your book. Um it's really, really good. Um you're really funny, it's really well written. Um, it, it just, it really vibes well with, um, what a lot of people are, uh, a lot of the questions that they're asking right now and, and the conversations they're having, where can people find your book and what's the best place to go to stay up on top of what you're, what you're currently up to? Well, um, you know, the correct answer is, uh, you know, your local independent bookstore. Excellent. And then, <laughs> and then Amazon, you know, I mean. Gosh, yeah. Speaking of prayer of confession, like I get like my groceries on Amazon, you know. Why fight it? So, Why yeah. fight it, Lillian? Uh, fight it. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I and I always say, um, you know, best way to find me is just show up in Dubuque, Iowa, to my my wonderful little church here. Well, it's not little, I guess. It's it's an amazing place. And uh, I, you know, as always, I kind of want to point people to some religious community. And when you're out exploring explore those communities and give them a chance and, and, you know, let the Holy Spirit move through the person sitting next to you. There's something powerful about that. Uh, but yeah, incredible. I could give you websites and all that other stuff, but, uh, we'll throw them I don't know. I, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, even, don't even bother. Just all the good stuff's in the book. That's what I always tell people. Perfect. Like I got nothing else, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you're, you've got more stuff in there. So, <laughs> Yeah. It's been really fun talking to you. I think your stuff is, is really interesting. And my sense is that um, part of my, the reason I wanted to talk about uh, being authentic about what we believe is I think a lot of the people who are listening to your podcast and listening to Diana Butler Bass and Richard Rohr and Paul Knitter, and they're hungry for that stuff. And it breaks my heart that they wouldn't be hearing about that in their churches. And so if you're a member of a church, Tell your pastor you want to hear them talk about the stuff that I'm sure they know. And if you're a pastor, be brave and don't believe what they told us in seminary that, you know, we couldn't talk about any of this because it would, it would blow up people's faith. If it got us excited, it probably gets other people excited. Oh, absolutely. Hey, freaking man. I uh, love it. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. This has been a, a sheer pleasure for us. And, uh, we'd love to have you back sometime if, uh, yeah, you know, if you got more more stuff you want to talk about, which I have a feeling that you you do. So, thanks so much. God bless you guys. You're awesome. Yeah, God bless you too. Thanks, Lillian. Bye. Feeling the pressure, the rumbling, grumbling under your feet now. No one can protect you. The trembling, settling in your knees.
is na 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 nothing that you can say na 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 no way to get away chasing the world to be better than anyone ever and one of us just so much fun <laughs> it's true it's so much fun this is kind of the best gig ever it, it's I, it's so much fun you're like i should create a job where i have an excuse to talk to the people that i've always kind of wanted to talk to about things i've always wanted to talk about and get to share those conversations yeah which makes it like i always get giddy you know which a lot of people don't like <laughs> and, <laughs> I get giddy. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> People should see you after two beers. I know. You're the giddy one, which I, is great. I, I turn into a uh, human emoji, and then... You really do, and it's phenomenal. I'm just joy. <laughs> but I get giddy because this is so great, and I know that I'm going to get to share it, like that this isn't just for me. Yeah. And so it amplifies my excitement because I'm like, so many other people are going to get the opportunity to benefit from this. That's true. So anyway, she's wonderful. Um... Big takeaway point for me is what we've always tried to do here, what this has always kind of been about, even before we even knew how to articulate it, is you've got to own your own journey. Yes. If you don't take your journey, somebody's going to take it for you. And so much of what is broken and bad and unacceptable in churches are the people, honestly, that have never taken the journey for themselves. Yeah. Being led around by their noses. Yeah, and the, the, one of the interesting thing that, the things that she brings up in the book that I had never considered is this whole idea of, like, um, back in the day, and we've kind of talked about this in other ways, so we've kind of, you know, circled around that, that territory, you know. Um, but she talks about the fact that, like, back in the day, the traditional church structure in the United States, at least, you know, was, you know, even in, in I'm trying to think back to my Lutheran days, you know, we used to call them... Uh, ECs or CEs. Oh, yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Christmas, Easter. Christmas and Easter. Uh, like folks who would only show up for those two services. Like we always knew at my dad's old church, right, that we had to set up extra chairs around the perimeter because on specifically those two holidays, we would just be slammed. And so, of course, my dad always put some little thing in there like, hey, we're, um, we're here every Sunday, you know, <laughs> if you guys want to come check us out on a non-Christmas Easter situation. Yeah. You know, um, but like, so like people always showed up and, and, and I never really gave it much thought. Like, well, why show up at all? You know, like what, if you're, if you're not into it, then, then what is the point of just showing up for like these two major holidays or whatever? And so she talks about that in this book. She breaks down the fact that, you know, there was so much, uh, shame and silencing, uh, inherent in, uh, your religious upbringing mm-hmm. that when someone asked you, it was, it was too embarrassing or too uh kind of i don't know uh kind of shoved away that like you never admitted hey i don't believe any of this i'm an atheist i've got a problem with this right you you would say well like well where did i go last christmas or easter i went to a lutheran i guess i'm lutheran i don't know right so that so you would pretend like you would kind of wear this badge instead of just admitting so we didn't give we didn't give people who were really like struggling another option, right? You were, you were either, you know, uh, you know, you, you pick a denomination or, I mean, that's really your only choice. Totally. 
So then now she talks about the fact that we've kind of done that to religious people in general, right? So like, uh, it, it's just, it's just really interesting. So she's like, open-minded religious people are kind of the new targeted group where, uh, so now if you are, can quote, a progressive Christian, now you, you have to keep that in the closet, right? Like, oh, I'm reading a, I'm reading a Pete Rollins book over here. <laughs> I can't, you know, but you can't talk about that. I sometimes like Rob Bell. <gasps> How dare you? Can't tell anybody. Oh, you're, I knew it. Adam, Adam, Adam likes to sit in his closet <laughs> and just read love. But wings. no, when I was, when I was pastoring, I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing. Like you could use a Friedrich Nietzsche quote before you could use a Rob Bell quote in a church. I believe that. I mean, it's bananas. Yeah. The whole thing is nuts. Yeah. It's so nuts. And, and we're don't so, ask questions. Right. Yeah. Everything in regards to whatever faith actually is really comes down to how well you understand, imbibe, and swallow um, the way we describe certain beliefs. Yeah. It's like, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> and it has, oh, and by the way, it hasn't changed in a hundred years. No. So even though lots of other things have changed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We don't touch these things. It's ridiculous, man. Uh, but it's, so she's great because she's so winsome and inviting and you get the sense that like she's, she's got a spine. She's got a backbone. You know what? She's got, she's got like a, she's got spunk. Yeah. And she's going to say, hey, you know what? No, this isn't all like there is beauty here. There's tradition here. There's, there's goodness here. There's depth here. There's truth here. There's all of these things like don't throw it all away. But at the same time, you're allowed to think you're allowed to ask. You're allowed to struggle, wrestle. Like that's what I get from her. And I just love it. Yeah, and, and I think she has a good grasp on, like, why, you know, this younger generation doesn't really have as much of a desire connection for church or, like, you know, organized uh, religion at this point. And, and so she talks about, like, you know, like, I, we're really good as religious people at having conversations that, that no one's really, you know, right. that, or answering questions, rather, that no one's, no one's asking. asking. Right, 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 right. So it's like... Like, come on, just be authentic. Instead of like focusing on like how cool our worship band is or, you know, like whatever, whatever the hip thing is now, or making sure that we have like this legit coffee shop in there. It's like, try being just authentic. Yeah. Own what you're doing. Yeah. Own it. Like, what are we doing? Like, own what you're doing. Like, truly just own it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having legit coffee in your church. I think I, I, I prefer that, but... I know. I, it's my lifeblood. I love coffee. <laughs> Probably too much. Anyway, th- these are the conversations that matter. Um, I hope you guys really dug this. Uh, what, what, what beautiful music are we listening to right now? Oh, man. So, so th- this is one. I saw the, the lead singer to this band uh, years ago open up for another band that I really like. And, uh, and that band is no longer, sadly. But <laughs> he has a new band that is legit, and they're called Tiger Drive. And uh, they're originally, I believe, from Columbus, Ohio, and they have relocated to uh, one of my other favorite cities, Nashville. So many do. I, I know we got some, some, some good listeners down in Nashville, and so um, what a cool town. But uh, um, they are down there now, and they're making a big name for themselves. Their music is really good, and uh, they're really blowing up. So if you guys like their music, uh, their album just came out the end of August on the 31st, I believe. Ish. There's a lot of teasers going on online, so if that is not true, I apologize. I'm not re-recording this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but they have singles out that you can you can get, um, 
And uh, yeah, support them, follow them on social media, tell them that we, we sent you and, um, and follow our playlist on Spotify. Absolutely. And Google, right? Somebody's doing a Google playlist. Um, yeah. How cool. Very cool. That is in, somebody else independent of us is curating. The, I don't know. I don't know anything yeah. about it. A, 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 you know, a <laughs> listener has told me this. Yeah. I have not verified this myself. Yeah, I don't have Google Music, so I don't know. But apparently someone out there, one of our listeners, it has been kind enough to um, recreate the Spotify playlist on Google. So Every time we get to do this, we're thankful for all you people out there. We're thankful for all the support, for all the love. Yeah. It's, just, uh, it's very meaningful to John and I to, to know that we're not just sitting in this little studio talking to just each other. <laughs> but this is a, a giant global conversation right. and, and that you guys are, are with us and sharing this and supporting us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, That's all I got for now. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, everybody. Inside. I see the diamonds right behind your eyes Tell me that you feel it Tell me that you feel it Cause you give me something that I know I can't replace There's just no reason that I'd ever wanna stay the same From this moment that we have together Okay.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.